0: Welcome to Storytime with Paul Doerr. This season of the podcast includes excerpts via live shows and in-studio recordings from my new book, I'm Leaving It and Other Stories. Some of the stories are true and some are not. I'll let you figure it out. But they all hopefully have my trademark charm Wit and profound wisdom. Purchase your copy of the entire book in paperback, ebook, or audiobook form at all major online booksellers. I also write a monthly newsletter that is both fun and insightful to subscribe to the newsletter or for further information about the book please visit palldor.com today's story Bookmarks. Sometimes when I'm at a friend's house and looking at their bookshelf, I really want to put the books in alphabetical order. How in the hell can you sleep at night with McCarthy on the top shelf and Shaban on the bottom? A few years ago, my parents were visiting and I had to go to work. I had not been living alone very long but had gotten used to having my own space without anyone interfering. I have not had a television for a long time Don't worry, I'm not being an asshole and smugly saying this. It's just a matter of fact. And I was nervous that my parents would get bored, leading them to snoop. I really should have hidden the condom somewhere besides the obvious place in the top drawer of the nightstand. After providing strict instructions as to what and what not they were to do, I left. Upon my return, I stepped in the door and with just a glance, I pointed at the bookshelf right inside the foyer and said, What is going on over here? I organized your books, my dad said. I looked at what he did, and it was a horror show. I still can't believe it. He reorganized the books by size, as in all the hardcovers together, paperbacks, and so on. The correct way to organize books on a shelf is alphabetically by the last name of the author, obviously. If there is more than one book by an author, they are subcategorized by publishing date. Everyone knows this. But this just looks better, my dad reasoned. It's more aesthetically pleasing. What if I'm trying to find a Murakami book? Not the latest one, but from a few years ago. How would I find it? It'll still be on your shelf, and it's not like this is an entire library. My dad missed the point. Sure, I'm not talking about having rooms of books. And yes, it's sporadic, if ever, that I need to look up something in a mid-career Murakami book. Again, that's not the point. The point is that I should be able to organize the books on my shelf in whatever way I want to. Organized by size. More aesthetically pleasing. Anyway, perhaps it is becoming an adult. My fascination with the library or due to the invention of the ebook, my collection was getting really outdated. First, I had moved all those books several times. I actually don't have a lot of stuff, mostly due to a lack of storage space but most of my moving boxes were heavy. Yes, I actually did read that copy of Ulysses. No, I didn't understand what the hell it was all about. Did I really need to keep it on my shelf just to make myself look smart? Besides, how many people come over, see Ulysses, and think, Paul must really be smart? They're probably thinking, that Paul really knows how to waste a lot of time. What about the entire shelf of circus books? Research for his failed screenplay, I swear. The screenplay was a 200-page script about an old-style circus but in contemporary times. I really got into the dark side of the circus. To this day, I can't figure out why no one wanted to produce it. The Da Vinci Code might have been a gift, but why did I keep it and move it three different times? Second, I am fortunate enough to live in a city that has one of the most incredibly complex and impressive library systems in the world. People that live here are pretty smug about their libraries. We're proud of them. Going to the library is cool. I pumped the brakes on my usage of the library when I was spending more time managing my holds than actually reading. Third, since I'm a writer, I should be promoting the physical book as essential to the survival of our society. Opposite to my smugness over not owning a television, I was very pretentious when it came to e-books. Not me, nope, a book wasn't a book unless it came in book form. After a while, when I realized I could carry around as many books as possible on my phone, the smugness was abandoned like any other numerous and ridiculous young adult pronouncements. Who cares? The words in the story are the important part. A book is a book. Get over it. As mentioned, where I'm living now and hopefully going to stay for a long time until I can't climb the stairs anymore has little storage. This didn't stop me from still insisting that I have two bookcases. See, this is a critical difference between living by yourself and with someone else. Bad choices. A partner would have said, We have no room. At least one of these bookcases needs to go. Maybe not bad choices, just the delay of reaching the right decision on your own. One of the shelves needed to go. I simply needed the space. I wanted the books to go to people that would appreciate them. There is a used bookstore that buys books. Whenever I've gone there, the proprietor investigates each book... Usually scoffs at the author and offers you pennies, only to resell at a highly marked-up price. He's not scoffing when he's making $7 on that hardcover of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I decided to have a party and invite some literary-minded friends over to take whatever they wanted. Maybe it was just a way to bribe people to come visit me. Probably. I pulled the books I didn't want, and the rest were negotiable. You never know. I still might need that 1934 memoir of a circus clown. The party was a huge success, and I did get rid of one entire bookshelf. I don't put this down to having many friends or even an interesting book collection, more that people like free stuff. A friend of mine started working in the film and television industry, and I gave her the film books that I thought would be helpful to her. A few days later, she messaged me about the book, or more specifically, what she found inside one. She wrote, Who is Jess?, and included a photograph of a bookmark she found in one of the film books. Written on the bookmark was the name Jess, along with a phone number labeled 555-5555 at work. I couldn't for the life of me remember anyone named Jess. The name and number were found in a book on Francis Ford Coppola. Okay, I was obsessed with Coppola around the time Apocalypse Now was re-released. I discovered, as most aspiring filmmakers do, the documentary Hearts of Darkness, about the making of the movie. I watched the Godfather movies way too many times, even the third one, which I believe to be highly underrated. All the crappy films, too, and he's made his fair share. Maybe ten years ago? What was I doing ten years ago? I was living in a windowless apartment owned by a friend of a friend's parents. The parents didn't seem to understand what we were doing there. The mother would sometimes be sitting in the living area when I got home from work, She'd just sit there, watching me, not saying a word. I spent a lot of time not being there. I spent most of my extra time in a bookstore down the street. The bookstore was open late, which was great, and had a tiny cafe in the back, also great. Since the cafe wasn't visible from the street, not many people actually knew about it, keeping all those Wi-Fi-sucking, table-hoarding freelancers away. Still, nothing. Jess? I couldn't recall someone named Jess. There was a phone number. I did the next logical thing. I called the number. Of course, it was disconnected, and I only got an automated message. Who was Jess? I had a real problem on my hands. I couldn't sleep, barely ate. I kept turning the question over and over in my head. Who was Jess? There was another piece of information that I overlooked. Investigating the photograph carefully, I noticed the bookmark was from the local store I frequented back then called Booktown. The next day, tired from too little sleep, I made my way to my old neighborhood. Where the store used to be was now a chipotle. Crap. After eating a burrito, I wrote on my plate and sauce, who was Jess? A friend of a friend used to work at Booktown. She worked at the store for almost 10 years, so she should know everyone that came through there. This led me to the phone number of the former owner of the store, and I called him up. At first, he couldn't remember anyone named Jess that worked for him or who might have been a customer. I explained the situation, which made me sound like a mentally unfit person. Hope was diminishing by the second when he said, Wait, I remember someone, but her name was Jessica. He came back on the phone with some old employee records, and I had a full name and address. Jess, or formerly known as Jessica, probably no longer lived at this address, but I had to check it out. Not too far from my place, I came to a large house separated into several apartments. There was an older gentleman at the side of the house installing some wiring. Excuse me, I said. Are you the owner of this house? He nodded, and I went right into it. Did you ever have a tenant named Jess or Jessica? I didn't want to explain the entire situation at the moment, but his reply came swiftly. Who are you, and why do you want to know about Jessica? I mean, no... As long as I've owned this house, I've never had a tenant named, what did you say, Jessica? He was hiding something, but what? So, there was someone that lived here named Jessica? He turned back to his work and said, I want you off my property. If you don't leave, I'm going to call the police. At that moment, I heard a bang like something was dropped on the floor inside the apartment above. I looked up and I could see a shadow in the window on the second floor. Someone was listening to our conversation. He looked at me one more time and took out his phone. I'm calling the cops. I left, but something happened to Jessica in that house. I'm sure of it. Returning that evening, I walked by to make sure the landlord was not around and climbed the fire escape to the apartment above. The window was slightly open and someone was inside. I crouched along the wall and listened. The person was talking on the phone. Yeah, someone was here earlier and they were asking about Jess. I don't know. What are we going to do? At that moment, I accidentally knocked over a flower pot. I heard the person running towards the window, so I took off down the fire escape and left the area. Cutting down an alleyway, I stopped to catch my breath. Doubled over, footsteps approached from around the corner. I cut between two houses and jumped the fence of a neighboring house. It was rush hour, so when I hit the main street, it was busy enough that I blended in with people on their way home. After pouring a small glass of whiskey at home, The glass was shaky in my hand as I brought it to my mouth. What the hell happened back there? A quick internet search returned five people with a matching name. Four of them had active profiles on either Facebook or LinkedIn. One of the Jessicas would have been too young to work at Booktown ten years ago. The other three lived in different countries. And their work history didn't include anything remotely connected to books or stores. The last one seemed to drop off the face of the earth a few years ago. True, she didn't list Booktown as a job, but actually had very little information. To all accounts, she didn't seem to exist anymore. From what I could find, the last place this Jessica lived was the house I just got chased from. There was no choice, really. That night I approached the backyard of the house. The grass hadn't been cut in forever, and a rusted-out refrigerator sat in the corner. Movement caught my eye. A raccoon slowly walked along the edge of the fence. We watched each other as we backed away. From the looks of it, no lights were on in the house. Maybe they were sleeping, but it was early evening. The back door was locked, but I tried the window next to it, which slid open. The opening was small, but I managed to squeeze in. As I moved through the house, the one thing I noticed was the lack of furniture. The odd chair. Besides that, it looked like no one lived there. Slowly I made my way upstairs to find the same thing, nothing. The flower pots and stuff outside was to create the illusion that someone lived here. I was standing in one of the bedrooms trying to figure out what the hell was going on when car lights shone through the windows. Two men pulled into the driveway and walked towards the front door of the house. There wasn't enough time to get out, so I hid in the closet. Again, nothing was stored in the closet. I could hear the two men entering the house and walking upstairs. I took out my phone and turned on the flashlight. Something was strange about this closet. The floor had what looked to be scratch marks. Lightly tapping on the wall, it sounded hollow. It didn't take much to push the wall, which moved outwards like a door. Behind it was concrete stairs leading downstairs. Hearing the men coming, I had no choice. The stairs curved around and seemed to go underground. When I reached the bottom, I found a series of cages, dungeons, Slowly I walked past each cell to find them empty. As I neared the last cell, someone pounced, and I jumped back with a yelp. A woman with long hair and a wild look in her eyes reached out for me. She put her finger to her lips, telling me to be quiet, and pointed up at the ceiling. Wait a second. Recognition. Jessica? I asked. She shushed me, but then nodded. What is going on? That was when the shovel came smashing down on my head, and the world went dark. When I woke, I was in the far cell down from Jessica. At least I figured out the question that got me here. Who was Jess? After our escape, everyone in my life had moved on. Jess and I parted ways. I had no one. Hair long, patchy beard. I spent my days walking the streets, wandering from place to place with no real goal or end point. One day, could have been March, could have been September, I walked into this giant park that runs the entire length of the city. Following a path, I passed a farm and went down a long row of stairs, bringing me deep into a ravine. I didn't get very far down the path before I reached a do-not-enter sign and a fence blocking the way. The sign also said that there was a police presence along the path, and you will be charged for trespassing. No signs like this matter to me anymore. I was outside the normal ranks of society. Of course, there was a small slit that other trespassers had made in the fence, so I crawled through and went on my way down the path. There seemed to be nothing wrong with the area, and I didn't see anything under construction. I came across a half-built bridge, the water stopping at a small makeshift dam. I guess this was the construction zone. I climbed over the top of some giant hills of dirt, And on my way back down the other side, I slipped on a sliver of snow and tumbled the rest of the way down. My ankle hurt a little bit, but the rest of me seemed okay and intact. A shadow blocked out the sun, and I looked up to find a wiry man offering me his hand. I took it, and he helped me to my feet. He said nothing, only cocked his head towards the path, turned around and walked away. I assumed he wanted me to follow him, so that's what I did. We walked north along the valley. Every once in a while, he stopped, turned around, and looked to make sure I was still following him. We walked until the sunset. The cold was setting in. Maybe it was even winter. Who could tell? At a certain point along the path, he took a right-hand turn into the woods. He stopped at the border between the trees and the path and once again cocked his head to follow. So I did. This was not a good idea, even though everything worked out. "'Don't do this.' "'We walked through the bare trees and bushes "'and came along to a clearing "'that had a tent leaning beside a fallen tree trunk. "'A blackened fire pit surrounded by large misshapen rocks "'was carved into the ground "'with a dirty lounge chair sitting next to it. "'The man went over to the other side of the fallen tree, "'his storage unit, and pulled out a second lounge chair. "'He unfolded it and sat it across from the vacant one.' He pointed, and I sat down. The man went back into his storage unit and started pulling out pieces of wood. He placed them in the fire pit in a decorative pose and quickly got a fire going. He placed a bent-up grate across the fire. Two cans of baked beans emerged from his stash, and he put them on the grate. Then we just sat there watching the fire. We didn't look at each other or talk or anything. After I don't know how long, he cracked open the cans, handed me one with a spoon, and we ate. We didn't take our eyes off the fire the entire time. When we finished, he took my can and put it into a garbage bag he had beside the storage unit. We watched the fire some more. we sat there for a long time. At one point, I started shivering, not so much from the cold, but from being so silent and quiet for such a long time. He disappeared into his storage unit once again and emerged holding a blanket which he tossed over my shoulders. The sun came up, and he stood. Somehow, all of the items around the fire were able to fit in two bags, one of which he slung over his shoulder. He handed me the other bag. We walked back the way we came. He stopped when at the perimeter of the campsite, looked at me, and cocked his head again. I followed him back down the path. Once again, we walked for a very long time. We reached the makeshift dam, I handed him his second bag, and he helped me cross it more gracefully. As I headed back to where I started, I looked back at the wiry man. He stood, watching me. We watched each other for a long time, until finally he raised his hand, waving. Something overtook me. He headed towards the train tracks on the other side of the hill. My every being screamed at me to catch up to him, not to lose him to grab onto him. I looked at the path where I had arrived and saw nothing. Not just saw nothing, but saw the future, my future, and only saw emptiness and longing and judgment. When I caught up to the wiry man, we said nothing. I took his second bag in my hand and we continued walking along the tracks. Eventually a train passed and I followed his lead of how to jump into an empty car. Pace yourself alongside it throw your bag into the car, one hand, the other hand, and jump. Once inside, the only sound we'd ever make, laughter. We spent the next few years never leaving each other's side, moving through the world from one city to another, and never uttering so much as a word. Thank you for listening. Again, If you'd like to purchase a copy of I'm Leaving It or any of my other books, they are available at most online booksellers. The live performances were originally performed and recorded at the monthly storytelling event, Stories We Don't Tell. To learn more about Stories We Don't Tell, head over to storieswedontell.org. For everything else, please visit Halldoor.com dot com